Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Last week I uh, traced the idea in John Calvin and actually in evangelical Christianity, which I claim mistakes Paul's depiction of the sin problem in Romans 7 as if it's salvation. That is, Paul is describing, I think, the thing that we're saved from, and there's a confusion. And today I want to clarify by contrasting Romans 7 with Romans 8, that in Romans 7, 7 and following, Paul is not depicting the Christian life, but he's depicting what is in fact displaced in Christ. And I would argue that Paul is setting up a contrast, in fact, between Romans 7 and the non-Christian subject, and actually from 7, 7 and following down to the end, and he's focused on the experience of Adam. He uses the word I, he says I, but actually, of course, at the fall of man in Genesis 3, if you remember Adam's first sentence, he says, I ran, I hid, I was afraid, I was naked. It's the first time that we encounter the word I in Scripture. And so many think that Paul is in fact giving us a kind of commentary on Genesis 3 on Adam, but of course Adam, Adamah, is just the word for human, for every man. And so the fact that from Augustine, Anselm, John Calvin, John Piper, people of this persuasion read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, as if this is part of the normal Christian life. But I think it's an insight into the failure of this theology, which actually mistakes non-Christian experience. You know, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? In verse 24, they mistake that for Christian experience. And I don't mean this as a dig against the spirituality of this particular people or this particular understanding. But I think, in fact, their mistake is the universal mistake. This is always what people will be mistaken about. That is that sin describes a particular experience, a particular form of human subjectivity, and it's oriented to a kind of self-punishing masochism. And salvation, that's what Paul is describing in chapter 8, is a displacement of that subject. And so to miss Paul's point about the nature of sin, I don't think it's simply a Calvinist or an Augustinian or an Anselmian error. I think it's the human error. And it points not only then to the blunder of Augustine. You know, it's Augustine's reading of Romans 5.12. He's actually reading it in the Latin Vulgate in which he misreads Paul's depiction of the work of sin. And he's the one who gives us the notion of total depravity of what we call original sin. And what he means by that is this idea that everyone is born sinful. That's not what Paul is saying in Romans 5. 
And so he misses the way in which Paul is describing the propagation of sin and then missing the resolution to that. And so to miss that sin reigns through death is not simply a theological error, but I think it's the human error, the work of the deception. You know, this is the lie of the serpent in the garden. You won't die. And that's what Paul is tracing throughout Romans. And so from Romans 7, 7 to 24, he's describing life under the lie. Verse 7, you know, he says that I did not know what it was to covet, or the word desire, apart from the law that said thou shalt not covet. And at which point he introduces then the deliverance of Christ at the end of chapter 7. You know, who will deliver me? Thank God that we have deliverance. And then chapter 8 then is describing this deliverance. And so Paul explains the reign of death which accounts for the spread of sin in Romans 5 and 7. And he's describing this dynamic. It's actually there in chapter 5. It's interwoven throughout chapter 5. The universally observable truth, we all know this, death reigns. People die. Death, he says in verse 12 of chapter 5, spread to all men. Chapter 5, verse 14, death reigned. Verse 15, the many died. Verse 17, death reigned through the one. Uh, as sin reigned in death, verse 21. And so Paul concludes chapter 5 with verse 21, sin reigned in death. It's not the other way around, and that's the way we often get it. It's the reign of death, and it's the orientation to death that it is, accounts for sin. And so he's going to build on this problem. This is what he's explaining from chapter 5 through chapter 8. Sin reigns in death because people would solve the problem of death by imagining they can obtain life through various means, through the law, through nationalism, through a variety of things. So there is a sense that human experience mitigates against a correct reading of Paul as sin's deception in the law of sin and death reigns. That's why Christ came. And so if we have missed Paul's point in chapter 5, we're likely to miss his point in the contrast between the orientation to death and the law, you know, the, what he's going to call the law of sin and death, and he describes this in chapter 7, and how this contrasts with life in the spirit, which he's describing in chapter 8. But if we've understood chapter 5 correctly, sin reigns in death, then we can see that he's drawing out this point about two forms of human life. We could describe one form, as he does in chapter 5, the first Adam, and the second form, the second Adam, which is referring to Christ. And so, let's go through chapter 7, chapter 8. First of all, the obvious thing in 7, 7 falling, there's no prayer, there's no communion, and that's striking because chapter 8 depicts a depth of prayer, being grounded in communion and prayer with God. And in chapter 7, there's this alienated single individual. I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. But in chapter 8, there is this communion and incorporation into God. Uh, 7.15, what I'm doing, I don't understand. 
I'm not practicing what I would do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. So Paul's describing this split within himself. But then look at 8, 26 to 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here's someone in prayer, but it's someone in whom the Spirit is enabling this communion in God. He searches the hearts, he knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Where 7-7 is focused on this isolated individual before the law, it's repeated reference to I. I do what I don't want to do. I think the I is there some 20 times. And I think it's a clear reference to Genesis chapter 3 and Adam's self-description. But chapter 8 speaks of a corporate identity in Christ. He's going to drop the eye. There is no eye in chapter 8, but now it's those in Christ Jesus. And then he describes a cosmic result of this in verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. All of creation is impacted by the work of Christ. And so throughout verses 14 to 30 in chapter 8, Paul is actually, he's describing in a way that prayer is a kind of impossibility on our part that God enables. This impossibility of communion from our side, God intervenes into this and makes it possible. He says, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so Paul describes our need to only abandon ourselves in the Spirit so as to know what to ask for and to realize our connection to God. And he uses the word Abba, Father, which of course is also missing in chapter 7, but is there in chapter 8. And so in our communion of prayer with the Father through the Spirit, we've entered into this inner Trinitarian conversation. It's a conversation, a communion between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's not that we initiate this depth of communion, but the Spirit enables us, engenders this conversation in us. As uh, Sarah Cochleus put it, prayer, in other words, is not a monologue to a distant patriarch, but the joining of a conversation which already destabilizes that sort of idolatrous thought experiment from the outset. To enter into that ongoing divine dialectical conversation in which God the Spirit answers to God, Abba, Father, in a ceaseless circle of gift and response. Who is God? God is communion, communication, and we enter into that communion in prayer. It's what she calls the space of Jesus, because actually we occupy the place of the Son in our experience of the Father and the Spirit. The second thing that we see, that there's no prayer in seven, there's a depth of prayer and com communion in eight. The second thing is that seven is describing death. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's talked in six about 
the body of death and then in 7 about the body of sin but then there's no Holy Spirit in chapter 7, 7 and following but then in chapter 8 the Spirit is mentioned some 19 times the Holy Spirit and it's the main subject of each section in chapter 8 and so where chapter 7 focused on describing I believe the dynamics of the body of death, this agonistic struggle in which I do what I don't want to do. Chapter 8 describes each of the Pauline categories constituting the subject. That is, I think 7, the subject there, is undone in 8. But now, instead of this struggle, this antagonism toward God, toward the self, he says that in verse 6 of chapter 8, that we have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace within ourselves. And so the key contrast is that between, I think he's really describing a kind of death struggle in chapter 7, and then in chapter 8, new life in the Spirit. And that's the way he describes the Spirit. The Spirit in verse 2 is equated with life. Paul's question, you know, in 7.24, who will rescue me from this body of death. Well, it's answered there in 8.2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's just described the law of sin and death. He's saying now we've been set free from that. The fear and slavery under the law of sin and death with its work through deceptive desire. He says that sin deceived me in regard to the law, the command thou shalt not covet. That it aroused desire. It became another law, he says. But this law is now voided. The third thing is that all of chapter 7 he's describing the eye, but he's talking about a visual kind of imagery. And then in chapter 8 he's going to describe hope and hope he's going to say is by definition that which is not seen and so Paul's depiction of desire you know this is I think again going back to Genesis 3 that she saw the fruit she saw that it was desirable for eating actually John will describe this sin as the lust of the eyes and in chapter 7 Paul uses verse 23 he talks about a kind of law of sight that I saw this as Adam is connected you know to the rise of shame that they suddenly see themselves they're naked we're ashamed we're afraid in chapter 8 Paul's eye the word is just the word ego in Greek is exchanged for a life of hope focused not on the seen but on the unseen verse 24 which brings about a conformity to the image of the sun. That is, yes, we have this image of the sun, but it's not a seen image, but we know who Christ is through the word of God. We hear this image. Christ is not an object for the eyes, but is actually the subject position here. And there's a reconstitution of the subject. We're in Christ, looking to the Father through the Spirit. And so there is no I in chapter 8. It's sort of like Galatians 2.20. He says, Paul says, I, the ego, have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. A new subject. 
Maybe a way of describing this hope is that it is desire of a different order. It's putting desire in its proper place. There really isn't the word desire in chapter 8 in the Greek. Maybe in your English translation. But maybe hope is a, a way of understanding a fulfillment. Hope puts desire in a different register. And so the hope in verse 20, look at look there, he says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Whose hope? Well, actually, it's God's hope. It's God's hope for creation. That all of creation is groaning as in travail, as in childbirth, because the revealing of Christ, the revealing of the sons of God, is actually a release of all of creation from this futility. And so if we say it is God's hope, maybe God's desire, we understand, oh, this is the prime force in the universe. And so what is being depicted in chapter 8? The love of God, the hope of God, the, the movement of God beyond himself to reach out to all of creation and to bring it to himself. I believe this is simply a picture of God's love, which maybe human desire, that's what it's for. And in this sense, hope is more fundamental than human desire. It's being incorporated into who God is, and it holds out the fulfillment, I believe, of the true desire. And so it's through lifting up human desire in divine hope or desire that hope, I think it puts our desires in their proper place. And so clearly what Paul is describing is not simply, oh, we need to get our doctrine of God correct. Certainly we need that but that we recognize participation in God is the reality of our lives. God's life is one we are to inhabit and live in. And maybe, you know, we already do and we need to affirm this and realize it. The other thing is that in both chapter 7 and chapter 8, there's suffering. But there are two very different kinds of suffering. Paul describes the idea of a struggle. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's describing a deadly suffering. Suffering from within that maybe apart from Christ is incurable. But then in chapter 8 he also describes suffering but it's a very different kind. It's not like in the Christian life you escape suffering but it becomes a very different thing that it's the source of the suffering is no longer within, but it's a sharing in the suffering of Christ in verse 17, which marks out that we are co-heirs. If you suffer with him, then you will share in his glory. And so the work of the law, the law of sin and death, you know, this agonistic struggle, this body of death is displaced and it's displaced by life in the spirit and this then gives us freedom. Paul says, we're now free, in verse 15, from slavery to fear. That life outside of Christ, I believe, depicts this slavery to fear. And now we cry, Abba, Father, in this new relationship, 
reconstituting the person as a child of God. And so Paul, though, in the verse there, he ties this directly to suffering. Look at verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. It's a mark of what it means to be a Christian to suffer with him, to suffer as Christ suffered. The fifth thing is that the body of sin and death is displaced. And Paul talks in chapter 8 about resurrection, but he means this resurrection life as already happening. The body of sin, the body of death is displaced, he says in 8, 10 to 11, with resurrection life now. It's not a putting off of the body, the material body, but it's the beginning, he says in verse 23, of the redemption of the world, the redemption of our bodies, and the redemption in verse 21 of the whole cosmos. The only resolution to life in the flesh, and of course what Paul means by flesh is not simply the body, he means by flesh the sin principle. You know, this is the problem with the brand of Christianity that reads chapter 7, 7 and following as the normal Christian life because the only rescue is in the future. But in chapter 8, Paul is describing an enacted resurrection. And obviously this will be fulfilled in the future, but he's saying right now we live this resurrection life in which the sin principle no longer reigns. And then the sixth thing, through the work of Christ, People are really made righteous. This is in contrast to a failed righteousness. So in 7.7, there is no discussion of the work of Christ. He's just describing this sinful predicament. But chapter 8 describes how the work of Christ changes up. And actually the word here, you know, katakrina existence, a kind of damnable suffering existence in which the punishing effects of the law of sin and death, he says they no longer condemn. You're no longer in this situation. In verse 1 to 3, he says God has condemned the law of sin through the death of Christ, ushering in the law of life and the spirit. And so where 7, 7 and following describe this condemnation, this incapacity, I do what I don't want to do, Chapter 8 describes life in the Spirit, which sums up the difference God's righteousness makes. That is, we're really made right. Things are really being transformed. The body is dead, he says, due to unrighteousness in verse 10. But the Spirit is life, and this is God's righteousness imparted. That is, we don't wait to be made righteous, but we're being made righteous. This then, in verse 4, results in the capacity, he says, to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. John Calvin says, oh, you can never do that. You can only walk according to the flesh as long as you're human. But Paul is saying, no, we can walk as he walked. This is the sense that Christ is the model for us. And this walk is characterized 
in all of its phases by the power of life, he says, which enables us to put on the mind of Christ. The other big contrast, number seven, if you're counting, is that chapter seven is describing living in a lie. He says, sin deceived me, and then he's describing this deception, and then he's going to talk about the truth of Christ. The truth of Christ is specifically over and against this lie. And so Paul is describing sin in terms of a deception. I think he's again talking about something on the order of the deception in Genesis. You won't die. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. And so in the opening verses of chapter 8, he counters this deception. He explains how Christ defeats and exposes the lie of sin in the death that he died. The punishing effects of the law of sin and death. You know, the condemnation he's described. He says, that's finished. God has condemned sin, verse 3, in the flesh of Christ. So that it can no longer deal out death or deception. And then look at verse 3. He adds, he says that Christ died as a sin offering. And the sin offering was particularly for the ignorant or the unwilling sin, which is, of course, the description in chapter 7, the I, the unwilling, I, the incapacity, who does not know and does not will what he does. So that Christ does not die for just a general wrongdoing, but I believe it, his death addresses the particular work of sin as it appears in chapter 7. This sin which works through deception and ignorance brings about a disobedience unto death. And the one who was obedient even unto death makes obedience possible. That is, following Christ, we're enabled to walk as he walked. And so the disobedience unto death that describes an orientation founded in deception. The disobedience kills you. It cannot obey God. It is hostile to God in verse 7. And obedience unto death recognizes death, but obeys in light of the resurrection. That is, death is no longer the controlling factor in our life, but we're now empowered in resurrection life. So living according to the lie, you won't die. The death resistance, that's to actually have a living death. But to live in spite of death, through resurrection faith, is to take up the truth, to live the truth. Number eight, life in the flesh is displaced. You know, the, Paul is going to use the word flesh, and it's displaced in the body. Of Christ. So in chapter 7, he talks about that sin is in my members, in the flesh, verse 25. In verse 18, sin that dwells within me, that is in my flesh. And so the place from which sin works death is the flesh. But of course, again, by flesh, he doesn't just mean the body, he means the sin principle. As N.T. Wright explains it, the reason is that there is now no condemnation is because God has dealt with sin in the flesh and provided new life for the body. Why did Jesus become a man? There's the answer. 
new life. He deals with sin in the flesh. He provides new life in the body. And those in Christ experience the death to sin and the new life. They can walk as he walked. And the sentence of death then is passed on sin. That in true likeness of sinful flesh, verse 3. So those who are found in his likeness, and this actually goes back to chapter 6, talking about baptism, they will experience death to sin rather than death by sin. Maybe the summation, this is point nine if you're keeping track, is that Paul is describing throughout chapter eight life in the Trinity. The Trinity is spelled out in chapter eight in a way, an explicit way perhaps, that it's not anywhere else in the New Testament. And of course this stands in contrast to that isolated eye in chapter seven. And so he talks about life in the spirit the death of I that divides and alienates is now displaced by this spirit communion founded in verse 8 by the Father who sent his Son who leads by the Spirit, verse 14. And so the Father is the agent in verse 20 who subjected creation in hope, who makes all things work according to good for those who love him, verse 28 who has foreknown and predestined those whom he has called. This is the work of the Father. And these he has justified and glorified. Verse 31. This communion, though, is in Christ Jesus, who was sent to set free, verses 2 and 3, from the law of sin and death, by condemning sin in the flesh. But it's through Christ that we're given the spirit of life so that those who suffer with him will be glorified with him and those who died and was raised he intercedes for them and then the beautiful verse at the end you know verse 34 to 35 nothing can separate us from the love of God and so the spirit given is God's righteousness enacted as by his life verse 13 you put to death the deeds of the body we're adopted as sons. We're enabled by the Spirit to cry, Abba, Father, verse 15. It says in verse 26 to 27, He helps the saints in their weakness through prayer. And so the Trinity is a communion in which and through which, verse 4, this new humanity walks. It has their mindset, verses 5 to 8. Their sonship, verse 15. The endurance of suffering, verse 17, and saving hope. And so I think generations of Christians imagine the inner life of God is closed off to us. But Paul is depicting invitation into the divine life. Maybe we could sum it up, you know, that chapter 7 is a depiction of shame. Think of Genesis, the fall. And then that's contrasted with glory and love. If I'm correct, and most commentators agree that chapter 7 is a commentary on Genesis 3, I think that he's really describing the experience of shame. What it feels like to fall apart as a human being. To run and hide and to live in fear. And he's giving us an interior view of that shame. 
course it's marked throughout by a kind of incapacity. But of course the great incapacity of shame is you can't love. If you're in hiding, if you're in fear, you really can't love the neighbor and you can't love yourself. And so shame marks not only the loss of God's presence, but it really marks the loss of the possibility of interpersonal love. You know, what, do you, what does it mean to love somebody? Well, you're there for them. Shame is a kind of absence. You can't be there for someone because you're in hiding. And so I believe the anatomy of jealousy, anger, violence, I think it really is rooted in this shame. And those who are hiding cannot be present for themselves, for others, for God, because they're set in an antagonistic relationship. That's what Paul has described, an unloving relationship in chapter 7. You're incapable of love. If you're incapable of walking as Jesus walked, the implication is you're incapable of truly loving. And so Paul is describing a love in chapter 8 that is indestructible. It's indivisible. Nothing, he says, can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus in verse 28. So, if we miss this contrast between Romans 7 and chapter 8, I've only filled it partially in. As I did this, I realized, oh no, I've left out several things here. But I I assume you don't want to hear the rest of the things. But there's more. I think if we miss this, we've really missed out on the reality of Christianity. And you understand the majority of our Calvinist, evangelical brothers and sisters are reading Romans chapter 7, 7 and following as the Christian life. There's no prayer, there's no hope, there's no spirit, there's no Abba, there's no love, there's no work of Christ, there's no other person, there's only the I, there's only law, there's desire, there's deception, there's unendurable suffering, there's alienation and death in 7, 7 and following. What a terrible way to imagine the normal Christian life. You compound this with the mistake of imagining that Paul's description of the damnable situation, I believe that's the right translation of Paul's word here, the life of sin, you imagine that salvation. It would seem to leave a person stranded in a kind of punishing life from which there is no deliverance. Because the only deliverance you have is in Christ, and you've missed that. But on the other hand, to recognize the contrast between Romans 7 and 8 is to realize this depth of overflowing love, a depth of communion and communication. We've been gifted with life and truth in the Holy Spirit who is transforming us. That's what Paul says in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And so Paul ends in chapter 8, and let's end where he ends, with this irresistible, unconquerable love that cannot be drawn back. I believe he's saying, you know what I described in chapter 7? This love is not subject to that kind of antagonism and division. Verse 37, But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.